Great job, Carrie. Thank you so much. You play volleyball. Where do you play volleyball? Georgetown High School? Well, you got to be from somewhere, so thanks for that. Good morning, Garden City Chapel. Carrie, you did a great job. And Georgetown's a great place. Good morning, Garden City Chapel. You guys say good morning. Come on, y'all got, you really ought to wake up before you try to go to church, don't you think? I was raised in a Methodist church, Main Street Church in Dillon, South Carolina, about 70 miles from here. I went to Presbyterian College, played football there four years, came out a Baptist minister, and I preached like a Pentecostal, so I'm a Methobacteriacost. You ever tried that? I've been sprinkled, dunked, and dry cleaned, so any way you can get it. I've had it. This morning, I want you to open God's Word. If you brought your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. Let me see. Did you bring your Bible? Great, guys. Great, gang. Good job. Open that Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. And write down in your bulletin in some notes space there the word masterpiece. Ephesians chapter 2. We want to look at verses 1 through 10 with special emphasis on verse 10. And I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about masterpiece. Now, what's really on my mind this morning is Christmas. Sorry, gang. It's not the beach and 98-degree temperature and sand and waves. It's Christmas. Don't ask me why I'm thinking about Christmas in the middle of June. I've got a friend. His name is Vernon Grimsley in the great town of Dillon. He and I were high school teammates and then college rivals. He went to Newberry College. I played at Presbyterians. So we played in high school. We played against one another in college. Vernon was 6'2", 300, and he's still 6'2", about 300. And now at, at the age of 61, he looks like Santa Claus. I don't know if that's why he loves Christmas, but Vernon Grimsley loves Christmas. In fact, he posts on Facebook weekly an update on the number of days until Christmas. He does it right now. I checked yesterday. It is 197 days until Christmas. So I'm looking you in the eyeballs and I'm asking you, are you ready? Are you ready for Christmas? We think about music and we think about life and we'll sing, We Three Kings of Orient Are and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We'll go to the holiday parties and the Christmas events and church services, and it'll be music, 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 and well, it should be. I think I'm cracking up. Am I cracking up? Somebody give us some music. Christmas is all about the Messiah, and Christmas is all about music. Now, some of us will attend. What's going on? Check me out there, blood brother. Help me out. It's just me cracking. I'm going to crack you. Some of us will attend the holiday parties and we'll stand when the orchestra plays the Hallelujah Chorus. You ever heard it from Handel's Messiah? Do you know the story behind the origin of Handel's Messiah? Let me share it with you. What should I do? Don't be 
turn this off? You know the origin of Handel's Messiah? August 22nd, 1741. A man named Charles Jennings delivered a compilation of Bible verses to a composer friend of his named George Handel. Jennings asked Handel if he could make an entertainment out of it. That's what he said. Take this compilation of verses and make an entertainment out of it. Author Hertha Pauli records the answer. She says, as soon as Jennings had left, the master started reading the text that he had received. The words Handel noticed were all taken from the scriptures. But in arranging the quotation, the master felt Jennings had outdone himself. He said the words seemed to sing for themselves. Handel started writing at once. He wrote so fast that the ink had scarcely dried on one page before he started another. The score cut was covered with tear splotches, and the master did not notice them. He forgot the whole world around him. He said, whether I was in my body or out of my body as I wrote the Messiah, I know not. For 24 days, he remained in the little front room on the first floor of his house near Hanover Square in London, setting down thousands of notes to Jennings' biblical excerpts. At regular intervals, Handel's servant brought him food, but the master left it untouched for 24 days. Sometimes the servant stood in silent wonder as the master's tears fell on the page and mingled with the ink while he penned the notes. And once the servant found the master sobbing with emotion, he had just finished the Hallelujah Chorus. I thought I saw all heaven before me, Handel told his choir boys, and the great God himself. And Handel's Messiah has enraptured audiences for 282 years and is considered perhaps the greatest musical score ever penned. But the question before the house this morning is, what if that work had never been published? What if that masterpiece, that composition, had been rolled up and lost in a corner behind Handel's desk, and its melodies and lyrics locked in Handel's own mind and not shared with anyone? If it had, one of music history's greatest achievements would have been lost. Handel's Messiah is a musical masterpiece. Let me show you this morning God's, Jehovah God's masterpiece. Put your eyeballs on Ephesians chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1 and go down through verse 10. We covered most of this last time I was with you about three weeks ago. Ephesians 2, 1 and following, the Scripture says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, 
in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You could call that the B.C. section of this scripture. The B.C. section, the before Christ section. Doom and gloom and death, verses 1 through 3. Watch the tone change, the tense change in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might share, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verses 1 through 3, B.C., before Christ. Verses 4 through 9, I see in Christ. Before Christ, dead. In Christ, Somebody say it with me. Alive, 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 brought to life by the power and grace of God. And now look at verse 10. It's what I want to call SC, since we are living in South Carolina. SC, since Christ. There's before Christ, there's in Christ, (laughs) and there is... Since Christ, look at verse 10, for we are his workmanship, that is the redeemed, the brought to life, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Beloved Garden City Chapel and our special guest, like Handel's Messiah, each of us is an inspired creation, and if twice born, an inspired masterpiece of recreation. God has inscribed his symphony of grace on our hearts like notes on a musical score and like an artistic genius whose joy is complete when his work is shared Our composer, creator, intends his work of art to be heard and seen and shared and enjoyed. Let me show you what I mean. Two things I want to share with you today. One, a statement. Point one is a statement. And then second, an appeal. Point two is an appeal. First, statement. You are a piece of work. 
turn to the person on your right and say, you are a piece of work. You, and don't leave out the person on your left. Say it to them too. You are a piece of work. Now, if my mama in Dillon, South Carolina looked at Johnny and said, Johnny, you are a piece of work, she'd be saying to me, son, you better get your backside in line or I'm going to come on your backside and straighten you up. You are a piece of work, but that's not what God means here. Look at verse 10a. The Scripture says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Workmanship. The word there is poema. Poema. The word from which we get poem. It's a work, a making, that which has been made, a poem, any work of art, a statue, a song, architecture, or painting. The New Living Translation has it like this. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. F.F. Bruce translates it this way. We are His work of art, His masterpiece. And so if you're redeemed, if you're forgiven, you are a work of art. Jot it down this morning, gang, quick and true and straight and strong. The believer's portrait is this. You are God's work of art. You are God's masterpiece. Not the heavens. Not the heavens. Although the heavens declare His glory. Psalm 19.1 says that the heavens declare the glory of Almighty God. The galaxies, the stars, the solar systems are His handiwork. Did you know there are 200 billion, billion stars, and each person could count 50 billion of them without the same star being counted twice? But as wonderful as the cosmos is, it is not His masterwork. It is not nature. Although nature radiates His glory, Romans 1.20 says that God's power and might and order can be seen in what He has made. From the Grand Canyon, a mile deep and 277 river miles long and 1,904 square miles of area. To the height of the snow-covered Alps, to the sunset falling into the sea in October. In the Atlantic Ocean, nature breathes the glory of God, but it is not His masterwork. Not the heavens, not nature, not Animals, not animals. Although animals reveal God's creative genius, so beautiful, so odd, so intricate, so individual, so unique. I mean, have you looked at a starfish or a peacock or an elephant or a giraffe? I mean, who could think up a giraffe, a stingray, a honeybee, an alligator? Did you know honeybees can fly 15 miles an hour and must consume 17 to 20 pounds of honey to be able to biochemically produce each pound of beeswax? Turn to the person on your left and say, it's not your beeswax. 
animals so created by God, but not his ultimate workmanship, not his masterwork, not the heavens, not nature, not animals, not the newborn human baby. A special, a special display of God's creative beauty. I mean, who has seen a baby born and not marveled and said there's a God on his throne with his hands in the design? Baby with his mouth wide open and arms reaching for life, the apex of God's creation, but still not his masterwork, not human beings. Although human beings are the zenith of God's creation, the wonder of the human is that he is made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. No confusion there. In the image of God. That means, despite his sinful moral nature, he has a unique to all other creation, delicate moral sensibility to know and experience God. Augustine said, Men go abroad to wonder at the height of the mountains and the huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of the rivers, at the vast compass of the season, at the circular motion of the stars, and they pass by themselves without wondering. Man is the height of God's creation, but that is still not the masterwork, the masterpiece called for in our text. Verse 10a again says, For we are His masterpiece. What is the masterpiece? Gang, the ultimate workmanship of God is the human being who, despite being dead in trespasses and sins, has been made alive in Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God has made us alive in and because of Christ. And so we are His workmanship. The masterpiece is the new creation. The masterpiece is the changed man. The masterpiece is the redeemed man. Why? Because the believer is the subject of two creations by God. Stay with me. Two creations by God. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. Human beings are created and held together by Christ. But the master work has undergone a second creation in Christ Jesus. Christ, listen, listen, listen. Christ, the Lord of creation, is also Christ, the Lord of recreation. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. That's the masterpiece. That's the masterwork. Greater than the Milky Way or the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Ocean or starfish or butterfly or thumbprint or fingerprint is the new birth of a person because it costs the Father and the Son and the Spirit 
everything and involves the incomparable power of the resurrection. That's why Jonathan Edwards said, the spiritual life which is reached in the work of new creation is a far greater and more glorious effect than mere being and life. Kent Hughes said, God's most stupendous creation is man made alive. I'll say it again. God's most stupendous creation is man made alive. So here, gang, is God's masterpiece. The saved man. The saved boy. The saved girl, the redeemed person, the changed person. Michelangelo was asked what he was doing as he chipped away on a shapeless rock. He replied, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. That's what God, folks, is doing with us. We are in his hands, in the hands of the great maker and in the hands of the great remaker. And he has made us, and he has remade us, and he is still making us what we already are. So what does he use? What does he use to craft out this masterpiece? He's already made us. If you're a redeemed person, if you're a saved person, he's already made you brand new. But how does he get the brand new To come out. How does the shaper and the sculptor sculpt an angel out of that rock? Here's how he does it. Four ways. Number one, his word. His word. The scripture says we are brought to life by the word of truth. Second, prayer. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 18 and 19 that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we may know His incomparably great power to us who believe. Third, He uses suffering. Somebody say, oh my. Sorry, but it's true. First Peter four twelve and 13 says, Why are you surprised by the fiery ordeal that has come upon you as though something strange were happening to you. God uses suffering, pain, as a refiner's fire to cause the angel to come out of the stone. And God uses people. God uses relationships to cause us to come out and make us to be the masterpiece he's already made us to be. Hebrews 10:24, every good Baptist knows that. Hebrews 10:24 says not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together. What is fellowship? Two fellows in the same ship. And we're all in the same and to ship and so together we grow and together We change, and together we refine. God's best work is teamwork. And so God wants us to team up 
with others? What does God use to bring out this masterpiece? He uses the word and prayer and suffering and fellowship. He uses people. He uses people. So number one, the statement. You got it? Everybody got it? Say good. You are a piece of work. Number two, my appeal. Wake up just a minute. We'll do this and then be gone. Number two, my appeal. First, the statement. You are a piece of work. Second, my appeal. So work your work. Find your work. Find your work. Look at verse 10b. The scripture says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Put it all together. Whole verse. Let's look at the whole verse. For we are his poema, his workmanship, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for, not by, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, gang, we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. John Calvin said, It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Martin Luther said, Justification is by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. We are not saved by faith plus works, but we are saved by a faith that works. Works, gang, are the sign that you're his workmanship. Works are the proof. Service is the proof that you are his workmanship. Good works are not the root of salvation. Faith is. But they are the fruit of salvation. So if you've got no root, you'll have no fruit. But if you have no fruit, you have no root. James chapter 1, verse 17. Listen, listen, listen. says, even so faith if it has no works, is dead. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And Colossians 1.10 says, And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Ricky, listen to me. This is the playing of the violin. This is the artwork on display. This is the music being played, the statue being sculpted, the poem being printed. God made you. God remade you if you've turned to Christ. God is making you, and God wants to work through you. So my plea, my appeal to you this morning is, find your work. Find your work created in Christ Jesus. Find your place, man. Find your ministry. 
God saved you for service. God made you for ministry. God created you to make a contribution. Life is not about duration. It's about donation. You make a living by what you get. You make a life by what you give. So give it out. Service. Good works. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Jesus said, Your attitude must be like my own, for I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. So jot this out in your outline. Life's greatest thrill. Life's greatest thrill to be used by God. To be used by God. To be played by God. And the way you're played by God is through your good works and your service. Now you say to me, Jr. how can I find my work? How can I find my service? How can I find meaningful service for Jesus? Write this out and we're done. Just look at your shape. Are you familiar with that? Rick Warren made it famous. Find your shape. Consider your shape. S stands for spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. There are 19 of them listed in the Bible, and every believer has at least one. Every redeemed person has at least one. One, it might be something like preaching or proclaiming. It might be like teaching. It might be administration. It might be encouragement. Nineteen different spiritual gifts listed in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Examine them. Study them. Evaluate them. Find your spiritual gift or gifts. Second, your heart. Look into your heart. Examine your heart. What do you enjoy doing? It would only stand a reason, folks, that God, God's not a cosmic killjoy. He don't want to make you do what you don't enjoy doing. So look at your passions. Look at what makes your heart beat fast. Look at what your heart makes your heart beat strong. Look at your passions, your heart. Third, look at your abilities. Look at your abilities. What do you do and what do you do somewhat well? That only stands to reason if you're four foot eleven, you're probably not going to play in the NBA championship series. So you look at who you are and what God made you to be. You look at your abilities, and then P, you look at your personality your personality don't discount your personality god made you god remade you and he's working through you and your personality so don't try to be somebody else's personality but you've got to know your own temperament your own personality and then e look at your experiences Look at your experiences. 
look at where you've been and look at what you've experienced and look at what you've gone through. It would only stand to reason that God, our master creator and our master recreator and remaker, would use everything we are and everything we've been through to give you the right place to make a contribution. A contribution. So look at your shape. And then how can it happen? How can it happen? Jot this down and we're gone. Number one, wait. Wait for the Spirit's filling. Now you don't have to wait long right now. Because the Scripture says that if you're in Christ, you have the Spirit already. So ask Him for His fullness and wait just a moment and then watch. Watch. Watch for opportunities. Walk through the open doors. And then work. Work. Find a place and minister. Step in. Step up. And then walk. Walk. Walk it out. Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 and 7 says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Walk in Him. Gang, you were saved for this. So walk it out and walk through the open doors. Colossians 3.17, the Scripture says, Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And verse 23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord rather than for men. I'm convinced, Ricky, that this is why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus and that you are to work out your salvation with fear and and trembling. Not work. It doesn't say, listen, listen. It doesn't say to work for your salvation with fear and trembling, but to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Look back at Ephesians 2.10 again. It says, for we are His work. You are a piece of work. We are His masterpiece, His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Gang, the secret to service is not seminary. Somebody say, praise God. I don't have to go to seminary. Been there, done that. Got the the diploma and the t-shirt. The secret to service is not church training. (laughs) The secret to service is not a discipleship group, although that's a great thing. The secret to service is availability. 
step in and step up because you are his masterpiece. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Let's pray together.